Good morning, First Baptist Church. Hey, what great worship this morning, right? I'm telling you, I'm blown away. He had tambourines on his foot. I don't know if you noticed that up here. He had a tambourine on his foot. Like that, I'm not a music guy. I have no musical bone in my body, but that just blew my mind. I absolutely blew my mind. Uh, hey, I'm Chris Phillips, as uh, I was welcomed so, so well earlier by Pastor Philip and Pastor John, and I am pumped up to be here. Uh, he mentioned I had a three-hour layover, but he didn't let you know how much coffee I had this morning. So if, if like, I'm just pressing the gas, my fault, I'm just, I'm hyped up on caffeine right now. Uh, no, uh, I love you guys. I, I cannot even begin to describe how much you all mean to our church and our family, to me personally. Uh, ever since I met Pastor Philip last August, uh, as he came to Denver to really search out and seek where God was leading in terms of you all partnering with the church plant, uh, I, I'm telling you, he and I, we just kind of had knit hearts. Uh, we're both uh, leadership development nerds. I'll just go ahead and call it what it is. We're nerds. And uh, we started talking books we've read and all these sorts of things. And so we just really hit it off. And I have a great love and deep appreciation for you guys and your church and what you guys mean to us. I really do mean that. And uh, that's not just a, hey, I like you guys and, and thankful to partner, but it really is a partnership. John, from the first time I talked to him, he said, hey, I just want you to know you can call me anytime you need to. Any, anything you have, when times are really, really tough, when times are hard, just give me a call and, and text or do whatever. And so whether it's a, a GIF that we're texting back and forth with or something else, uh, we really love and appreciate you guys in this church. Uh, I know that Pastor Philip is leading you well uh, because I can feel your prayers and I see them being answered. And so I'm very, very thankful for that. But hey, I do also want to show, I know our picture's around, but it's, it's never, if I don't show my family, then I haven't done a good job as a missionary pastor coming in. And so they are not here today, but I think we have a picture of my family, uh, my wife and four kids. So that's kind of the first prayer request that you can write, uh, put down is that I have four children. Uh, we have ages nine, seven, five, uh, and 16 months. And so uh, we have a, a three boys and then a daughter. Uh, and so the daughter is the prized possession, the caboose, and we're done. That's it. That's the end of the train. That's, that's through. My wife is good by that. Uh, well, hey, let's get after it. You guys have been walking through, just started with the Gospel of John. Uh, and I'm really, I'm kind of pumped to be walking through that today. And you're, you're talking about healing the hurting. Uh, and I, I think that is so easily shown today on healing the hurting. And so I'm, I'm so grateful how it lined up. We're going to be in John 2, and it's going to be verses 1 uh, through 12. And we're going to see Jesus performing his first sign, turning the water into wine. And uh, many of us have heard the passage before, but we're going to walk through what that really means and how that's healing the hurting. You see, because this, this passage brings up so many questions, emotions, thoughts, uh, and just, okay, how does this happen? And how, how do you walk through this? He literally turned water into wine. Why wine? And what was he doing at a wedding? And there's so many things that come up. But I do think one of the, the primal things that we see out of it is, is not the questions that it arises, but just seeing God providing in the hour of need. You see, because Jesus does that over and over again. He provides in our hour of need. And as a church planter, I'm telling you what, uh, I see it. <laughs> I literally feel like every prayer is a prayer for the hour of need. 
Uh, we're in a lost culture in Denver, Colorado, and so not only just uh, people coming into relationship with Jesus, but starting a church uh, is really not easy. It's a difficult task. You have to find people. Uh, you have to have resources. It takes about $1.5 million to start a church in our city. Uh, and so just providing in the hour of need, just spiritual attacks, providing in the hour of need. Like, I feel like my life is asking for Jesus to provide in the hour of need. And so just as Jesus always does, and in the passage that we're going to look at today uh, and examine, he provides in the hour of need. You see, his way of healing the hurting many times comes through his provision, right? Can I get an amen if you've ever had Jesus provide in the hour of need? Amen? One of the greatest things about church planting and Jesus providing in the time of need is like, you almost kind of get to tangibly see God work. And that's really, really fun because things are so new and there's so many needs and there's so many ways that you're just calling on God to move. You get to see this kind of over and over again. And so in this kind of developing people, finding people, finding partnerships, raising capital, all this kind of time frame that I'm in for Journey Point right now, I am getting to tangibly see God provide in the hour of need. And I want to tell you just one real quick, uh, just big yay God moment that he did providing in the hour of need. Uh, the end of last year, we received a, a large individual donation to Journey Point. Uh, and now that's not uncommon for people to give at the end of the year, right? Uh, tax write-off, all these sorts of things. But this one was significantly large. And the thing that was crazy was like, I'd never, ever heard of this person, met this person, had any connection to this person at all. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm grateful for this person. <laughs> but at first, you're kind of going, was this a mistake? <laughs> and, uh, and so what happened was I, I sent an email off because that's all I had. Sent an email, fired it off to the person with this large individual contribution, thanking them, letting them know, hey, I'd love for my kids uh, to walk through this with us. We want to send thank you notes to you so they can write some stuff to you and understand what we're walking through. And I heard nothing. Crickets. I mean, literally, I was going, okay, eight weeks had passed. I'm going, did this person really mean to give us this gift? And, uh, and so finally, about a week and a half ago, I get an email back. And so I get an email back. This person says, hey, one, I'm sorry it's taken me so long to get back to you. Uh, I'm sure you're probably wondering why I, we, were, we sent you such a large donation. Yes, I'm, I'm not debating you, but yes, I, I would love to know why. And she said, uh, well, I heard your story from one of your partner churches. I saw it shared on social media, and I go to that church, uh, and it really tugged at my heart. You see, I've got a brother that's from Chicago, and he gave his life to the Lord at a young age, but he hasn't really been involved in church since then. And he's married to a woman that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, and they have two daughters, ages nine and five. Neither one of them have a relationship with Jesus. And our family has been praying for them to find a church home. And this tugged my heart because we've really been praying for the last four years for him to find a church home because he's in an area that doesn't have a lot of churches. You see, four years ago, he moved to Stapleton, Colorado. And we have been praying for him to find a church because every weekend that he doesn't go to a church home in Stapleton, those girls and his wife do not get to know the Savior that I know. And so talk about providing in the time of need, not only financially for our, our church and our family, but how about God just reminding us that before God called me to church planting and before I knew Stapleton, Colorado existed, there was a family on their knees praying for their family member and their daughters in Stapleton where God was gonna lead us to plant a church. You see, God provides an hour of need in way many areas than we can possibly wrap our minds around. You see, because this morning in Stapleton, today, right now, as you and I are worshiping and hearing this great worship, there are 65,000 people in Stapleton, and out of those 65,500 of them are worshiping Jesus. 
500 out of 65,000 people are worshiping Jesus in the town I call home. And so we need God to provide in the hour of need. Uh, we, we, we just need Jesus to show off. We need him to turn water into wine. And so I'm excited to talk to you about this today. And, and I'm really confident that you have probably been at a point in your life where your needs have mounted up. Anybody felt overwhelmed? Right? I mean, that's, that's constant. I got one hand in the back. That's good. You've probably been waiting, maybe even praying for a breakthrough in whatever it is going on in your life. And if you're like me, you believe that God works too slow. <laughs> Anybody, right? I mean, just transparency here. I believe God works too slow for my, my needs. Maybe you can't even see a way out of your situation. Or maybe the needs seem to far outweigh the reality that you have. Sometimes we lose hope. We feel like we're alone in our struggles, and the stress just seems to be too much to bear. But what I want to share today out of the passage is that it's not, because Jesus provides in the hour of need. Not the hour of want, but the hour of need. So turn with me, scroll with me, click with me, do whatever you got to do to get to John 2, verses 1 through 12. Uh, it's the fourth book in the New Testament for those new to the Bible. This is about three quarters of the way through the Bible. And we are picking up just two days after Jesus' encounter with Nathaniel and the first disciples that were called. As well as at the very end of that passage, he actually tells Nathaniel, hey, greater things you're going to see. Well, I love a guy that just gets after it, right? Jesus says greater things you're going to see. So, hey, a couple days later, here you go. Let's see what we have in store. So turn with me to John 2, verses 1 through 12. Let's read. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What does this have to do with you and me, woman? Uh-oh. Jesus asked, my hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six Stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. And Jesus said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it, had, where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called to the groom, the head waiter did. And here's what he says. Everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they stayed there only a few days. Can we pray? Father, you're good. <laughs> Lord, uh, you provide over and over and over in our time of need, and we're so grateful for that. God, thank you for your word. Let it dwell in our hearts. You speak from your word today to your people. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. You see, Jesus provides in the hour of need. This first sign we see turning water into wine is actually unique to the Gospel of John. And so out of the four Gospel writers, John's account is the only one that has this private sign that Jesus performed, and it's more than likely because he was the only disciple that was called at the time that it happened. 
And so clearly he is the only one uh, that wrote an account to it. And for those new to the Bible, John is, is one of the four gospel writers. Uh, that, that's just basically four men that wrote about the life of Jesus and put it in what we have as the Bible today. John was also considered the one who Jesus loved. And he was that guy, right? Golden boy is what he was probably called. I just see him getting made fun of a lot. But this is the person that wrote what we are walking through today. And as we kind of look at this situation, we've got to understand weddings in the ancient Near East. They were a big deal for families. I know they're a big deal now for us, but they were a really big deal for families in the ancient Near East. So this is a great event that was honoring not only just the groom, but the family and really the area in which they lived in. So running out of wine would have been a slap in the face to all the guests that were there. It would have brought shame to everybody that was involved in this wedding. And so in this passage, we see that Jesus not only performs a sign to prevent this from happening, but he, he also does it secretive so that this person is not shamed and is not guilted by what is going on in their life and in this circumstance. You see, this sign fixed more than just a shortage of wine, but it also helped the groom by keeping it on the down low. Jesus was a down low guy before down low was something that was cool to say, right? <laughs> Only Jesus' mother and the servants knew what happened. As a matter of fact, the head waiter never even knew. You, you saw he brings the groom up. He never even knew what happened. And so this secrecy was the ticket to avoid bringing shame on the family. But it also enabled Jesus to honor his mother's request, but also avoid doing anything before the hour that Jesus mentioned. And we'll talk about that in a second. So he honors his mother's request. He keeps it secret for the groom, but he does it all before this hour that he's talking about. But he did, simp he did much more than simply fill a need. He turned embarrassment into a blessing. The head waiter's honoring the groom is kind of the peak of the story, right? There at the very end. And so instead of having to endure that shame, the groom was actually honored for his over-the-top hospitality and for saving the good wine for last. And so we, we get to see this picture of Jesus being an over-the-top hospitality type of guy. And so this is the first of many situations in John's gospel where Jesus restores something to a better than original condition. It also reveals the deep, deep, deep concern for meeting people in their hour of need, no matter how inconsequential or how small it may seem to everybody else. And honestly, through these passages, through this passage, I see that there are three principles that show and talk about the provision of Jesus, okay? So the first principle that we see is that Jesus's provision is purposeful. And you can look at that in the very beginning. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus's mother was there and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. Now this is just two days after the encounter with the new disciples and Nathaniel, but I love the symbolism on the third day and actually the first week of Jesus's ministry. This kind of kicks off Jesus's ministry. And so it's the third day on the first week. There's a couple of symbolisms in scripture with water. Actually, we, we can think of Moses in the Old Testament, right? Moses turns water into what? Blood. <laughs> okay, all right, so there we go. Water into blood to signify judgment. But here's what Jesus does on the third day. 
he turns water into wine to signify joy. I know another third day that really brings joy in my life even today. That's the third day Jesus rose. We'll celebrate that in a couple of weeks, right? On the last week of his ministry. I, I just don't find that there's a coincidence. I think these things are not coincidental but purposeful because Jesus was a very purposeful person. But hey, notice this. On the first week of Jesus' ministry, he was, he was at the synagogue trying to gather the best ministry and partnership and plan to reach the people of the city, right? Oh no, wrong. Wrong. The first week of his ministry, he was out engaged with the people. On the first week of his ministry, Jesus was relational. It says he was invited to this wedding, and so he went to this wedding and went out with others. Now, I'm positive that if we all took out a piece of paper and wrote down our needs, we would have tons of needs in our own life that we could put on that piece of paper, right? Maybe it's jobs. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's work situations. Maybe it's relationships in the family. Maybe it's comfort. Whatever it may be, we can write down some of those needs. But Jesus was out building relationship with other people so that he can meet others in their time of need. And I think this was very purposeful because we see it throughout the life of Jesus' ministry. The turning of water into wine was the first of 35 recorded miracles in the scriptures. You see, Jesus was purposeful and he knows the hour of need because he was relational. He was there. It's not by chance that he accepted this invitation to the wedding. He was called, he came, he accepted the invitation. He feasted with them to teach us to be respectful in our relations, to be purposeful in our relationships. Jesus was purposeful in his relationships. Uh, but now, Chris, how can his relationships be that good if he called his mother a woman? <laughs> I, I've got three boys, and if any of them said woman to my wife, I don't, I'd have to jump over her in order to get to them, right? And, and so we can read that and think, man, his relationships couldn't have been that good. Well, actually, in the context of the scripture, that would actually be like him saying ma'am today. It was actually a very polite way of approaching her in this standpoint. It would be like us saying ma'am today. And so we, we see this and we think, okay, well, what's going on? Well, if it was polite, what was it about? It was a distancing response of Jesus to his mom, actually. And he coupled that with the statement, the hour has not yet come. So we look at this hour, and so as we see this hour is going to be mentioned a couple of times throughout the book of John, you'll see that it's in reference to his crucifixion, where his saving work for our lives is accomplished through his death. No one was ready for that yet at this time in the first week of his ministry, and so he's just reminding his mom of that. So it was actually a, a polite way. He was merely stating to everyone there, that heard that he did not derive his significance from his mom, but that she and along with us today derive our significance from him. Amen? It was simply a way of placing a line between his humanity and his deity. And this is sort of a beginning kind of thread that we see that family relationships were not to be the determining factor in Jesus's life. Everything about Jesus was his connection to the Father and the determined hour which had to be coming with his atoning, sacrificial death. He was purposeful because he knew his mission. 
I feel too often today, we let family get in the way of the mission that Christ has given us. I, I love that people don't want to do things out of comfort. Sometimes we don't do things out of convenience, but far too often I see that it's not comfort or convenience as much as it is family. My family did not want me to move to Denver, Colorado. It had zero to do with me. I have four of their six grandkids. <laughs> Literally nothing to do with me. They just didn't want me to move because they were losing access to four grandkids. But they didn't want me to move. Not at all, not even close. But I had to ask myself, what does Jesus want? Because I, as much as I love my family, and I do, I love Jesus more. As much as Jesus loved his mom, he had the connection with his father, God. This passage shows that Jesus provides in the hour of need, but the point is not on those needs, but on Jesus as an extraordinary person who clearly recognized his mission and his purpose and someone who would not let human pressure obscure either of those. His provision was purposeful. You see, God is not a God of chaos. He is a God of order, and Jesus' provision is not random, but it's purposeful. His provision in your life is purposeful. The second thing we see, the second principle, is that Jesus' provision is not only purposeful, but it's without measure. Look at verse 6. He says, now six stone water jars have been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them, so they filled them to the brim. See, these jars were typically used to wash the hands for Jew Jewish purification, which seems a little bit odd, so maybe that's why he didn't want anybody to know that he did it. <laughs> if they knew what they were drinking out of, maybe it would have just incited chaos, right? Listen, 20 or 30 gallons, let's break that down. If you do the math, that's 120 to 180 gallons of water turned into wine. That would be the equivalent of 600 to 750 bottles of wine. Now, I'm not that sharp of a person, but I would think that 600 to 750 bottles of wine is a lot. The math that I came up with is that if every person there had three glasses of wine, then 600 to 750 bottles would be enough for 1,500 people. That's without measure. We had a lot of people at our wedding, but we didn't have 1,500 people there. That's a lot of wine. Jesus doesn't skimp. He goes over the top. Jesus is a without measure type of person. One of my biggest pet peeves is when Christians go to restaurants at lunch and ask the waiter or waitress if they can pray for them. Now you're probably thinking, that's really weird, Chris. That's a good thing to do. <laughs> yeah, you're right. But I have heard from my share of waitresses that say, man, they don't like having Christians at their table because sometimes they're the worst tippers. You see, we're really generous with our prayers, but we're not so generous with our pocketbooks. And so when we go there, we're not showing the over-the-top, to-the-brim, without-measure Jesus. We're showing them a picture of Jesus who's a little bit selfish and stingy. And so if you're going to lunch today, be over-the-top. Be without measure. Don't skimp. Show them the love of Christ, not just with your prayers, but also with your pocketbooks for somebody who might be at a time in need, and you can help Jesus provide them in the time of need by him doing it through you. Verse 7 says that Jesus not only filled the jars up, but he filled them to the brim. Now this brim reminds us of Jesus providing without measure, but it really points to the provision of Jesus in his messianic and abundant messianic provision. 
You see, John 3, 34 says that for the one whom God sent speaks God's word since he gives the spirit without measure. We have the spirit without measure. Show it. Jesus' provision is abundant and without measure. And the only thing I would say is that if you haven't experienced his abundant, without measure provision, then you probably don't have a right perspective of the grace that he has on your life. Because his grace on your life is without measure. It's either that or you aren't praying for God to do only things that he can do. You see, I'm praying for Jesus to do an abundant work in Stapleton above anything that we could ask or think. I'm praying for people in droves to come into a relationship with him through the teaching and preaching and relationships pointing to his word. I'm praying for him to do something that I cannot do in Stapleton, Colorado. I'm praying Ephesians 3.20, that he does a work exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. I long and desire to see him bring people to a saving knowledge in him without measure in Stapleton. Are your prayers for provision man-sized or are they God-sized? Could you accomplish your prayers if you really put the effort to it or could only God do it without measure? We should be at such a need in our lives that only God can answer without measure. Listen to this by Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon said, It is a blessed need that makes room for Jesus to come in with miracles of love. It is good to run short so that we may be driven to the Lord by our necessity, for he will more than supply it. If we have no need, Christ will not come to us. If our needs stand before us like huge empty water pots, or if our souls are as full of grief as those same pots were filled with water up to the brim, Jesus can, by his sweet will, turn all water into wine, the sighing into singing. We should be glad to be so weak so the power of God may rest on us. What would it look like next Sunday or even Easter, as John mentioned, if Jesus answered your without measure prayers for Bradenton? Would there be a couple of different people here or would there not be enough seats in this place for anyone to sit down? Would there be enough people here to disciple those new in their faith or to explain the scriptures to those without knowledge? Would there be enough servants to welcome those on campus without measure? I am so tired of Christians not serving, loving, and honoring their communities without measure because they're too focused on things that only appease them and their desires. First Baptist, love this town without measure. Serve this town without measure. Why? Because Jesus provides without measure. Jesus loves without measure. And if we want to be a reflection of him, then we need to do the same. Here's the final principle that we see. Jesus' provision is for his glory. Verse 11 says, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. So this falls right in line with what we saw in John 1, 14, where it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The entire reason that John is writing this gospel account is to reveal the glory of Christ to us. 
The miracle showed the glory of Jesus. The miracle showed his sovereignty, that he is creator and ruler. The miracle shows he is merciful and purposeful and provides abundantly for his people's needs. Every single one of us sitting in here this morning has a God provides moment. Maybe we've forgotten it. Maybe we need to dust it off a little bit. But we all have a God provides moment. The one I started with, the individual gift, the donation that she gave because she's been praying for her family that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus. You think that gave me more confidence in me? You, you think that made me realize how awesome I am? <laughs> I'm pretty awesome, I think. My wife tells me that a lot. My kids do. But it had nothing to do with me. It had everything to do with Christ revealing his glory. Nothing about me at all, because God provides for his glory, not yours. God provides for his glory, not yours. The reason that God did that for me was to provide in the hour of need, absolutely, but also to remind me of his glory, to remind me that he is in charge of his church. You see, ultimately, everything God does is for his glory and his glory alone, to make his name known, to make his power known, and to move us to tell others about his power and his glory. I actually even love how the Christian Standard Bible here calls it a sign and not a miracle. You see, because a miracle is contrary to nature, yes, and can show how awesome God is. But the word sign, the word sign here shows that it's more than just some sort of wonder. A sign points to the reality of who Jesus is. A sign shows who he is and how powerful his name is. These signs show the reader that the God of the Old Testament is anew in Jesus Christ in this first week of his ministry. Even practically speaking, you saw it. His disciples did not yet know or understand his death and resurrection. This was all new to them. But through this sign, you better believe they realized his power and his provision. This was their first glimpse at it, to see his power and his provision and a sign of what was to come. So today, as you are wrestling in the circumstances going on in your life, ask yourself, does Jesus provide in the hour of need? Not in the hour of want, but does he provide in the hour of need? Can you trust the purposeful, without measure, glorifying provision of God? Can you? Absolutely. Then stop worrying with the small details going on in your life, the small circumstances, and start trusting in his provision when you need it. If you take one thing from today, know that Jesus provides in the hour of need. And so as we go out hearing this message, okay, that's great. This has to do with me, but what about everybody else? Well, know that when we rest in Jesus' provision, we also rest and submit more easily to his plan. When I submit to knowing that he provides in the hour of need, it's much easier for me to submit to his plan. And if I didn't embrace that when God calls, God provides, 
I'd feel isolated and alone in Denver, Colorado, away from family, friends, comfort, convenience, resources, everything. But over and over again, I have seen Jesus tangibly provide just when I've needed him to. In the Bible, we see it over and over. Right? At one point in Matthew, he pays a temple tax by having a coin in a fish's mouth. <laughs> That's provision. With five loaves of bread and two fish, he feeds 5,000 people. Seven loaves and a few small fish, 4,000 people. <laughs> and last, but certainly not least, Jesus provides in the hour of need for man. Stuck in our wretchedness, stuck in our sin, stuck in our not right relationship with him, Jesus comes, lives a sinless life, only to be murdered on a cross, put in a tomb, and then raised three days later in the last week of his ministry. And after accepting his death, his burial, and his resurrection, this brings us back into right relationship with him. That's the ultimate provision in the hour of the ultimate need. 